Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. We, um, we barely got into 1 Samuel chapter 13 last time. And we only read about half of the chapter. So in a moment we're going to read the entire chapter uh, together. But first let's get our bearings this morning. Shaul was now the recognized and undisputed king of Israel. However, his main support and loyalty came from the eight northern Israelite tribes and to some degree those three tribes to the east of the Jordan River. Now, the two southern tribes of Judah and Simeon weren't open opponents of Saul, but they were rather ambivalent, and Saul must have recognized that fact. And so recruiting for his military came mainly from among the loyal group of eight tribes. Now, as we pick up today, we're at a time just after Saul had neutralized the main, or at least most immediate, foreign threat on Israel's eastern front, the Ammonites, as, as led by Nahash. And we read about this in chapter 11. But on the western front, the Philistines had grown bolder and more aggressive. And by means of the carrot and the stick, they had again established a significant presence upon Israelite land. The stick was their professional and well-trained army that they used to oppress and control and threaten. The carrot was that any of the Israelite clans and tribes who would not resist them would be considered either allies or non-combatants and thus generally left alone to continue ruling themselves and living peacefully. Naturally, they had to do the Philistines' bidding. They had to provide some labor for various Philistine projects, fight alongside them if need be, and pay some tribute, some taxes, to help support the Philistine cause. Now, there's no record of Saul taking vengeance at this point in his reign against these few Israelite tribes and clans who availed themselves of the Philistines offer a friendship in exchange for loyalty. Now, a couple of reasons for this are that first it was generally only the southern tribes and clans who did this because the Philistines were on their border and they were in the most danger. Second is that Saul understood that it was a, an arrangement of self-interest and self-protection. So it wasn't really so much of a repudiation of Saul's leadership or a desire to give up their Israelite identities that they were making these alliances with the Philistines. And besides, King Saul still wasn't quite at a point of sufficient political strength yet to convince the other tribes to punish the highly regarded and esteemed tribe of Judah for this transgression. Now, as it is in most societies, while the leadership can be anxious to make war for one cause or another, the people usually aren't. And sometimes we ought to be. There's no question that Saul was correct in his calculation, that the Philistines had to be dealt with or Israel would simply become part of greater Philistia. Okay. But convincing people who just wanted a farm and tend to their flocks and their vineyards that armed conflict was needed is a whole other matter. We only have to look to the 20th century to see how long tyrants with world domination in mind were allowed to run amok before the more powerful nations could muster the political will to oppose them. And even then, the people were reluctant. And all through those wars, vocal opposition continued. 
as was so typical, Saul's sons were his senior army officers. Yohanan was apparently the most prominent of the bunch. King Saul had, a, had begun a campaign to push the Philistines back to their seacoast nation and so had troops stationed at Gibeah under Yohanan's leadership and then others were at strategically important places such as Michmash and they were under Saul's control. The campaign had bogged down for the lack of interest of the Israelite people. And because the Philistines had been somewhat careful not to get overly aggressive okay, in hopes of not arousing too much Israelite passion that would boil over into open rebellion. What they didn't count on was Saul's impulsiveness and his personal need to find a cause to rally all Israel to loyalty to him. Jonathan, Yohanan, being part of the royal family, shared his father's ambitions and his mindset. So he went out and assassinated the Philistine governor of the city of Geba for no other reason than to incite the Philistines to step up their their aggression that would in turn force the up to now reluctant Israelite clans and, and their tribal leaders to join with Saul to fight against the Philistines. Let's uh, pause now and read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Page 310 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Follow along with me. uh, Shaul was some number of years old when he began his reign and he had ruled Israel for two years when he chose 3,000 of Israel's men. 2,000 of them were, were with Saul at Michmash and in the hills of Bethel, and the thousand were with Yohanan in Givat ben Yamin. The rest of the people he sent back to their respective tents. Now Jonathan assassinated the governor of the Philistines in Giva. And the Philistines heard of it, and so Shaul had the shofar sounded all throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard that Saul had assassinated the governor of the Philistines, and thus made Israel a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. So the people rallied behind Saul in Gilgal. And while the Philistines assembled themselves together to make war on Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and an army as large as the number of seas, as the number of sand grains on the seashore, they came up and pitched camp at Mi'kmash, east of Beit Avon. The men of Israel saw that their options were limited and that the people felt so hard-pressed that they were hiding themselves in caves and thickets and crevices, watchtowers, cisterns, while some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the territory of Gad and Gilead. But Saul was still in Gilgal, where all the people were eager to follow him. He waited seven days, as Samuel had instructed, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. So the army began to drift away from him. And Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished sacrificing the burnt offering, there was Samuel. He had come. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. Now Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul answered, I saw that the army was drifting away from me. That you hadn't come during the time appointed. And that the Philistines had assembled at Mimash. And I said, now the Philistines will fall on me, O Gilgal, and I haven't asked the favor of Adonai. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Shaul, oh, you did a foolish thing. You didn't observe the commandments of Adonai, which he gave you. If you had, Adonai would have set up your kingship over Israel forever. But as it is, your kingship will not be established. Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and Adonai has appointed him 
to be prince over his people because you did not observe what Adonai ordered you to do. Then Shmuel left Gilgal and went up to Givat Benjamin. Saul counted how many were still there with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the men with him took up quarters at Givat Benjamin while the Philistines remained in camp at Mikmash. Then raiding parties began coming out from the camp of the Philistines, three of them. One group turned towards the road leading to Ophrah and the territory of Shual. Another group took the road towards Beit Haron. And another company took the road towards the desert through the territory overlooking the Vadi Sofim. Now, there was no metalsmith to be found anywhere in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, we don't want the Hebrews making themselves swords or spears. So whenever any of the people of Israel wanted to sharpen his hoe, plowshare, axe, pick, he had to go down to the Philistines where the exorbitant prices were two-thirds of a shekel for filling for filing a pick or a plowshare and one-third of a shekel for filing an axe or setting an ox goat in its handle. Thus, when the time came to fight, no one in the army of Saul and Jonathan were equipped with either sword or spear, although Saul and Jonathan, his son, did have them. A garrison of Philistines had gone out to the pass of Michmash. Well, Jonathan's murder of the Philistine governor of Geba had its desired effect. The Philistines saw this as open rebellion, not just as an act of a local group of uh, malcontents, but rather as part of a plan. It was a work of King Saul who represented the nation of Israel. Therefore, as the Philistines ratcheted up their pressure the people of Israel realized they now had no choice but to resist. So, they assembled at Gilgal to ready for battle. Why at Gilgal? Because it was typical of the Israelites to gather at their holiest place to ask for Yehovah's blessing and direction before they engaged an enemy. Now, verse 5 says that the Philistines brought 30,000 chariots to do battle. This is a copyist error. There weren't 30,000 chariots in the entire known world combined at this point in history. And and the number probably wasn't 3,000 either. Because even that quantity of chariots is well beyond the scope of a relatively small nation as Philistia to have in its arsenal. So it would only be speculation on my part to say how many chariots there were. Nonetheless, it was a formidable amount. There were also many troops on horses. This is only slightly less terrifying than chariots. And some large but undefined number of foot soldiers as well. Now let me pause to say that whether regarding foreigners, Hebrews, worshippers of God in general, when the we see this biblical phrase, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore, This is just hyperbole. It's a Middle Eastern saying, very common, that means a large number. It doesn't mean infinite. It doesn't mean even beyond the ability of our number system to count it. It's just trying to communicate a large but undefined or even unknown quantity. Now the Philistines set up their battle encampment at a place called Mikmash, which was a little bit east of a place called Beit Avon. Now, now many Israelites were so terrified at this turn of events that they left their homes and villages and hid out in caves and in the crevices of large rocks, even in empty water cisterns. Others fled to the Transjordan. Undoubtedly, many of them had relatives that were uh, living over there, and so I'm sure they were welcomed. But those men who came to fight for Saul remained strong and with resolve, 
And so they stayed with him at Gilgal as they waited for Samuel to show up to bring God's oracle to them before the start of what would be a great and pivotal battle with the Philistines. Now apparently Saul was told by Samuel that they would that he would arrive at Gilgal within seven days. Now seven is a number of divine completeness. And it's used as a way of demonstrating that this looming war was going to be seen as a holy endeavor. But from a practical matter, we've got to also remember that Samuel lived in Ramah. And it took some time for him to travel to, to Gilgal. Before we go any further, now let me explain that there's a lot of confusion between these two names that we see in our Bible in this story um, of uh, between the places of Geba and Gibeah. Now, some translators have decided that they're actually just the same place. But that's not the case. Definitely not the case. Okay. The problem is that they're both spelled the same. Gimel ved Ayin. Okay. Since ancient Hebrew does not have written vowel sounds, then this confusion is the case with a whole raft of Hebrew words that are written the same, but when they're spoken, they're pronounced just slightly differently. So you get a different meaning. In this case, what we in English typically say as Gibeah, and it's usually how it's written in our Bibles, Gibeah, is actually pronounced Giba. Okay? And then the other place that we typically pronounce as Giba, the Hebrews pronounce as Geba. So we have Giba and Geba. You can understand the confusion. All right. Jonathan was in Geba when he assassinated the Philistine governor. Anyway, Saul grew impatient waiting for Samuel to arrive in Gilgal. Seven days came and went, no Samuel. So King Saul took matters into his, whole hand, into his own hands. There was an altar and a sanctuary at Gilgal. So King Shaul decided he'd be the one to offer the sacrifices to the Lord. Now without doubt, there were priests at Gilgal because of its very holy status. But King Saul demonstrates here his casual disregard for God's commands in ritual protocols. The only Israelites legally allowed to offer sacrifices were the priests. Not even the Levite workers were allowed to do this. Certainly no king, the political leadership, was allowed such a high privilege. But even more what we see, if we properly translate... Um, the original Hebrew is that King Saul ordered that the Olah and the Shlamim offerings were to be brought to him so he could personally officiate over them. See, the Olah is the supreme offering. It's the one that's to be offered up only by the high priest. The Shlamim sacrifices were voluntary offerings that, while technically could only be officiated by priests, were regularly offered up by a layman as a family-oriented sacrifice, a kind of holdover from those days long past when each family's firstborn was the officiator of sacrifices and each family had their own altar. And wouldn't you know that Saul offered the one sacrifice that only the high priest was to present to God, the Ola. And of course, no sooner does he do this than Samuel shows up and essentially asks, just what in the heck do you think you're doing? And Saul's answer in verse 11 was that he was getting worried because many of his Israeli militia were packing up and going home. Right at the same time, the Philistines were building up their forces at Mikmash, but Samuel hadn't arrived. 
And so he continues to explain to Samuel that he forced himself to perform this sacrifice in order to gain the necessary favor with God. Samuel has no patience for this. He retorts that King Saul did a foolish thing by daring to go against Jehovah's Torah commandments simply because he felt it was expedient. But this indictment of Saul by Samuel now takes on the form of a judgment. And the judgment is your kingship will not be established. Now this doesn't mean that the Lord is immediately canceling Saul's kingship. Rather it means that Saul's son will not succeed him. There will be no line of Saul. There will be no dynasty of Saul. And this was always paramount in a king's mind that his family would continue on in power for generations. Now there's a lot of disagreement by scholars over exactly what mitzvot, what command Saul had foolishly broken. Now literary critics in particular say the problem was that King Saul was usurping Samuel's role when he offered the sacrifice as a preface to holy war and that Samuel was jealous and he was upset. Others say that it was because Saul had broken Samuel's instructions that he was to wait seven days. A few claim that the problem was that Saul didn't properly acknowledge the prophet Samuel's higher role as the divine messenger. Frankly, I think these proposals are rather tortured ways of getting around the obvious just so a scholar can sound innovative. In verse 12, Saul admits that he personally offered the Olah sacrifice to which, in verse 13, Samuel directly responds, you did a foolish thing. You didn't observe the commandments of Yehovah. It was Saul, a non-priest, presumptuously offering the greatest of all sacrifices to the Lord that was the foolish thing. It was a very clear and specific Torah commandment that Saul was breaking. That only priests can offer sacrifices and only the high priest, and apparently Samuel was included among that, could offer the highest sacrifice, the Olah. Now further, while later we're going to see David and Solomon and other kings speak about the many sacrifices they offered, as a means to prove their personal piety, we see that what they meant by that was that they provided the sacrificial animals or they were personally present at the ceremony. Priests were always involved. But here we see specifically that Saul actually performed the ritual sacrifice himself without a priest when he said, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And the price for this rash and unlawful act on King Saul's part is severe. Now it's interesting that we find utterly no remorse from Saul. No argument. Nothing. He didn't say a word. Instead, the king just went on his business as usual. What are we supposed to think about this? Well, I take it to mean that Saul just blew it all off. I take it to mean that Saul thought that basically, this was all just merely a personal feud between him and Samuel that would blow over in time. But Saul, rather, Samuel also told Saul that God had already decided upon a replacement king. And it will be a man after his own heart, meaning a man after his own mind, his own thinking. It will be a man whose goals are God's goals and whose passions are God's passions. And once again we encounter a Hebrew term that is translated into English as prince. That term is Nagid. 
That's an important term. Because we're going to see it later in the prophetic statements about the Messiah. So often we hear him called Prince, Nagid. And it means king in waiting. The designated future king, but not king yet. We know from what happens in the coming chapters of 1 Samuel that the the new designated, or rather the designated future king is David. We also know from the New Testament that the designated future king that is also Messiah is Yeshua. Now, later actions by Saul prove, I believe, my suggestion, that Saul never took what Samuel said to him very seriously. Or perhaps he was so innately rebellious that he thought he had the power to thwart any attempt for another to take the throne from him. Now, remember my comments from the last lesson when I explained that the story of of King Saul is essentially the story of the anti-king of Israel. So as we later get to the narratives of King Saul's desperate attempts to hang on to his throne and kill God's Nagid, David, knowing full well that this was God's will because Samuel told him so, We see this parallel with the attempt of the ancient spiritual anti-king, Satan, trying to do all he can to destroy God's spiritual Nagid, the Messiah, Yeshua, thinking he can thwart God's plan. But this kind of uneasy relationship now between king and prophet would become the norm from here forward in Israel's history. And it's pretty easy to understand why. The heavenly king has his agenda and the earthly king, who is merely a fallen man, has his own. The prophet presents the heavenly king's agenda to the earthly king, but the earthly king always prefers his own. So conflict between king and prophet is inevitable. Now after this clash with the king, Samuel departs for uh, uh, Geba, Saul's hometown. And Saul took a, a count. And only about 600 men remained with him there at Gilgal. Now remember that Saul had very little leverage over his army. This was still a voluntary militia. And if the men decided they didn't want to fight, or they didn't like the leadership, or they got scared, they just went home. Now various translations have Saul leaving with Yohanatan and the 600 men uh, for Geba, the same place that Samuel went. However, other translations have Saul and his men going to Geba. We already talked about this name confusion. Geba is the correct place. We know this because of what comes soon. But in a nutshell, Geba was only a a, a mile or so from Mikmash, where the Philistines set up their camp and where the coming battle would occur. But Geba was at least five miles away. Events will show that the Philistine camp had to be very close to where Saul was located. And we're going to get there shortly. Well, the Philistines sent out three raiding parties. And their purpose was probably to project force by demonstrating control over the surrounding areas such they could march out anytime they wanted with impunity. It was also to try and hunt down those troublemakers who opposed them too strongly. One group went north towards the Jordan River Valley, another west along the road to the coastal plain, and a third group went south towards the wilderness to see if there was any attack perhaps coming from that direction. 
Well, then verse 19 detours just a bit to explain a very detrimental situation for the Israelites. They had few to no metal-edged weapons. The Philistines, on the other hand, were known for their high degree of metals technology, and they used it to their advantage in their weaponry. Iron was relatively new to the region at this time. And it was a significant advance over bronze, which was a much softer material. This meant that a soldier could literally break an enemy's bronze sword with his much harder and sharper iron sword. Therefore, we see the high level of control that the Philistines achieved over some areas of Canaan and that they were able to keep the Israelites from even possessing metal tool-making equipment. An iron-edged plow, even bronze, was far superior to wood. But in order for an Israelite to buy or even sharpen or repair a metal-edged farm implement, he had no choice but to go to the Philistines since Hebrews were barred from this craft. Now this enabled the Philistines to keep then the Israelites from making metal weapons. So whatever the Israelite militia used in battle, it was very inferior to what the Philistine army was equipped with. Well, whatever metal weapons Israel did have were given to their leaders. Thus we read in verse 22 that King Saul and his son Yohanan did have metal swords and spears. The final verse of chapter 13 sets up the battle scene. For chapter 14, it says, A garrison of Philistines had gone out to the pass of Mikmash. Let's move on to chapter 14. We're not going to get too far, but we're going to read this entire chapter so we get the whole story. Chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, page 311 in your complete Jewish Bible. One day, Yohanan, the son of Shaul, said to the young man carrying his armor, Come, let's go across to the garrison of the Philistines on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Now, Saul was waiting at the far edge of Geba under the pomegranate tree in Migron. The force with him numbered about 600 men. Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Pinchas, the son of Eli, the Kohen of Adonai and Shiloh, was carrying a ritual vest. No one knew that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan was trying to cross to the garrison of the Philistines, there was this rocky spur on one side and another rocky spur on the other side, and the name of the one was Botsets and the other Sene. And the one spur rose up on the north in front of Mikmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on! Let's go across to the garrison of these uncircumcised people. Maybe Adonai will do something for us, since Adonai can rescue with a few people as easy as he can with many. His armor bearer replied, Do everything you think you should. I'm with you, whatever you decide. And Jonathan said, Here, we'll cross over to those men and let them know we're here. And if they say, Wait till we come to you, We'll stand where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll go up. And that'll be the sign that Adonai has given us victory over them. So both of them let their presence be known to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, some Hebrews are coming out of the holes they've been hiding in. And then the men of the garrison said to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us. We want to show you something. And Jonathan told his armor bearer, Come on up after me, for Ananias has handed them over to Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands as well as his feet with his armor bearer behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer following him finished them off. That first slaughter of about 20 men was accomplished by Jonathan and his armor bearer in a space only half as long as one side of the area that a pair of oxen could plow in a day. There was panic in the field camp 
among all the Philistines. Likewise, the garrison and the raiding party panicked. Besides all this, there was an earthquake. Thus it grew into panic caused by God. Saul's men on watch in uh, Gibah, Benjamin could see the enemy camp scattering and running in all directions. Saul ordered the forces with him to call the roll and see who was missing. So they called the roll and found Jonathan and his armor bearer weren't present. Saul told Ahiah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the people of Israel. But while Saul was talking to the priest... The uproar in the camp of the Philistines continued and it kept getting louder. And Saul said to the priest, "Ah, put your hand down. Saul and the entire force with him assembled and went into battle. But they found the Philistines all fighting each other in utter confusion. The Hebrews from the surrounding countryside who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them into the camp, deserted, went over to Israel with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, On hearing that the Philistines were fleeing, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hills of Ephraim pursued them in battle. So Adonai saved Israel that day, and the battle spread as far as Bethaven. Now Israel's soldiers had been driven to exhaustion that day. But Saul issued this warning to the people. A curse on any man who eats food until evening, when I finish taking vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people even tasted food. Now the people came to a forest where there was honeycomb on the ground. And when the people had entered the forest, they saw there the honeycomb with honey dripping out, but no one put his hand to his mouth because the people feared the oath. But Jonathan hadn't heard his father charging the people with the oath. So he put out the end of his staff in his hand, dipped it into the honeycomb, and he raised it up to his mouth, whereupon his eyes lit up. But one of the people said in response, Uh, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, a curse on any man who eats any food today, even though the people are fainting with hunger. And Jonathan answered, My father's brought trouble to the land. Just look at how my eyes have lit up because I tasted a little of this honey. How much greater would the slaughter of the Philistines have been today then if the people had eaten freely of the spoil they found with their enemies? That day they attacked the Philistines from Mi'kmash to Ayalon. But the people were very exhausted. So the people rushed at the spoil, seizing sheep and cows and calves, slaughtering them on the ground, eating the flesh with the blood. Saul was told, Look at how the people are sinning against Adonai, eating the blood. And he said, You have not kept faith. Roll a big stone to me immediately. Now said Shaul, go around among the people and tell them, each of you is to bring his cow and his sheep and slaughter them. Here, then eat. Don't sin against Adonai by eating with the blood. So each person brought his animal with him that evening and killed it there. Saul erected an altar to Adonai. It was the first altar that he erected to Adonai. And Saul said, let's go after the Philistines by night. We'll plunder them until dawn. We won't leave one of them alive. And they answered, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let's approach God here. And Saul consulted God. Should I go down in pursuit of the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But he didn't answer him that day. Saul said, come here all you heads of the people. Think carefully. Who's committed this sin today? For as Adonai, Israel's deliverer, lives... Even if it proves to be Jonathan my son, he will be put to death. But no one among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other. And the people replied to Saul, Do what seems good to you. And Saul said to to Adonai, the God of Israel, Who was right? Jonathan and Saul were chosen by Lot, and the people went free. And Saul said, Cast lots now between me and Jonathan, my son. Yohanan was chosen. Then Shaul said to Yohanan, Tell me what you did. And Jonathan told him, Yes, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff in my hand. Here I am. I'm ready to die. 
And Saul said to me, God do the same to me and more also if you are not put to death, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Heaven forbid, as Adonai lives, not one hair of his head will fall to the ground because he worked with God today. In this way, the people rescued Yohanatan so that he didn't die. Then Shaul stopped pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines returned to their own territory. So Saul took over the rulership of Israel. He fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, the people of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Sophah and the Philistines. No matter which way he turned, he defeated them. He demonstrated his strength by attacking Amalek and he saved Israel from the power of those who were plundering them. The sons of Saul were Yohanatan, Yishvi, and Malkishua, while the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the older, Merav, and the younger, Michal. Shaul's wife was named Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaatz. The commander of his army was named Abner, the son of Ner. Shaul's uncle, Kish, was the father of Shaul, and Ner the father of Abner was the son of Aviel. As long as Saul lived, there was bitter war against the Philistines. Whenever Saul saw any strong or courageous man, he recruited him into his service. Look at this man. Giba and Mikmash were on opposite sides of a very deep ravine. This ravine had been cut by running water over the eons. Now it was just a wadi. A wadi is a dry riverbed that comes alive only occasionally, usually after a strong rain. Often the water actually flows a few feet underground, and so a shallow well at times will access water. Now most wadis are simply channels for water that comes temporarily from the seasonal rains or thunderstorms and then they just go dry again very, very quickly. Israel's military camp was on the south side of the ravine and the Philistines occupied the north side. About a mile, maybe a little bit less, apart. The ravine itself, though, was of strategic importance because it wound its way all the way down to the uh, Jordan River Valley and also provided a good pathway that connected to a road that led towards uh, the Mediterranean seacoast. This wadi, this ravine, was a natural highway suitable for caravans or for large groups of soldiers. So it was very important to both sides to control it. Verse 1 says that on that day, Jonathan made a daring proposal to his armor bearer. They should, just the two of them, see what the Philistines were up to at Mi'kmash. A logical question is, what specific day is this referring to? There's two parts to the answer to that. First, it's referring back to chapter 13. Remember, breaking the scriptures apart into chapters is a modern innovation. Back in chapter 13, it ends where it says, a garrison of Philistines had gone out to the pass of Mi'kmash. But the second part of the answer is that in the Bible, the term on that day or in that day doesn't necessarily mean this this 24-hour period that we call a day. Okay. It's more referring to the overall context of the situation. So we could paraphrase this. During the time that the Philistines had sent a garrison of soldiers and established camp at Mi'kmash, they did this. Or in another but complementary sense. In response to the Philistines sending a garrison of soldiers to Mi'kmash, Jonathan made this proposal to his armor bearer. It could have been the next day, a few days later, but it all had to do with the occasion of the garrison of Philistines going out to Mi'kmash. Well, here we're kind now, this story, kind of formally introduced to, to, to Jonathan. 
And although we're nearing the end of the lesson, I want you to pay close attention to this because it really has some interesting ways it plays out in the chapters and in the books to come. It's made clear that King Saul is Jonathan's father and equally clear that Jonathan was a chip off the old block. Okay, he was as headstrong and impetuous as his father and so he told his armor bearer they ought to walk across that ravine and challenge the Philistines to come on out and fight. King Saul knew nothing about this foray because he was back with his 600 troops at Geba where he was camping under a pomegranate tree. Now, it was usual that a recognizable tree was where the military or governmental authority would station itself because it was easier to describe to a large contingent of people where they could find the leadership. In other words, in addition to it being a prime camping spot, always reserved for the leadership or the elite, an exceptionally big tree, or in this case an exceptionally desirable tree for its sweet fruit, was a real good landmark. Now, since this was a holy war, naturally uh, Israel's high priest was present. And here we are told that the high priest was a fellow named Ahiah, the great-grandson of Eli. Eli was Samuel's mentor from the time Samuel was a little boy. Now, although it doesn't directly say that Ahiah was the Kohen, or better, Kohen Hagedol, meaning the high priest, it tells us that he was wearing the ephod. Okay? Now, the ephod was this special ritual vest that was symbolic of the high priest. By the way, as of this time in history, there were competing high priesthoods in existence. Eli's line wasn't the proper lineage. And exactly how it came to be that Eli and now his grandson Ahiah was the high priest, at least for some tribes, is really open to debate. Now, and I think this is kind of interesting, watch how this issue of the high priest subtly plays out, but at the same time has pretty significant role in Israel's history, even though generally it goes unnoticed. And I'm going to point this out to you, by the way, as we go along through Samuel and Kings and so on. Eli, and therefore his descendants, were of the line of Ithamar. Ithamar was the youngest son of Aaron. Ahiah was of Eli's, and therefore Ithamar's line. And therefore, by the law of Moses, he had no divine right to the high priesthood. The high priesthood was supposed to go to the descendants of another son of Aaron, Eleazar. Somewhere along the line, a power struggle took place, and Eli's family won out. So here we have two high priests in existence at the same time. And King Saul has the opportunity to do what is right and put the proper high priest back into power. High priest according to the Torah. But he doesn't do that. King Saul instead decides that Ahiah was to continue on as the government's high priest. Here's the reason Paul made that decision. Eli's family was allied with the eight-tribe northern coalition. Since Saul's tribe, Benjamin, was part of that same coalition, naturally they recognized Ahiah as their high priest and ignored the other one. And Saul wasn't about to rock the boat because he was mostly concerned with gaining loyalty from his people. But in a couple of chapters from now, When King Saul dies and David becomes king, a new and different high priest suddenly springs onto the scene, Sadok. And guess what? Sadok is of the line of Eleazar, the Torah-authorized line of high priests. Zadok was certainly around. He was operating during Saul's day. In fact, he was Ahiah's competitor. However, he wasn't recognized 
Zadok wasn't, as the high priest by the northern tribes for political reasons. But Zadok was recognized by the two southern tribes. David's tribe was the southern tribe of Judah. He was recognized as the proper high priest. So it was logical that when David became king, he set aside the northern coalition's high priest, Ahiah, and installed the southern coalition's high priest, Zadok, as the high priest of his government. See how this stuff happens? Not a lot different. Not much has changed over the centuries, has it? Now, on the one hand, while this was certainly the divinely right thing, I suppose, for David to do, on the other thing, these things don't happen accidentally. And David actually made a political calculation. Now, Although the Bible doesn't explain the details about how some of these political and governmental changes came about, nonetheless, it really helps for us to find out what was behind it. Because then we can see how God moves hidden and unseen in His providence in the lives of men. Balancing things out bringing about His will, advancing history towards redemption, eventually punishing the wicked, vindicating the righteous, even though none of this is a particular concern to most of the leaders and primary, primary characters that are involved. Nobody even knows it's happening. Next week, we're going to explore this daring exploit of Jonathan and his armor bearer as they confront these Philistines at Mi'kmash.